Let me just gush for just a moment, because one of the things I really love about doing some of my ruminations, not all of them admittedly, but some of them is getting to re-enjoy things that I really, really like. You know, when I got to replay uh, Half-Life 2 was pretty much the first, it was the beginning of that thing for me, you know, when I started actually playing the games before ruminating on them, and watching the movies, obviously, before ruminating on them. You know, but going back and re-watching Star Trek 4 was just a huge treat. I mean, it was for Star Trek 2 as well. Oh, I love that movie so much. But I just really enjoyed Star Trek 4. I wanted to start on that high note. Because it was important to do that, since the very next thing I want to mention is the crew of the Challenger. I know at least some of my audience knows what I mean before I explain, but allow me to elaborate for those of you who are not aware, or weren't around when this happened. The crew of the Challenger... It was a NASA incident. I don't, I, I don't want to go into details. They died. Uh, there was an incident, an accident, um, part malfunction, blah, blah, blah. And they all died for nothing, for no reason. You know, there was no big thing. They didn't die gloriously. They didn't die accomplishing some great good. They just died because of a fluke. And that sucked. I was actually watching television when that happened. I was watching that launch when that happened. I mention it here because that incident happened about six months before this movie came out. They were already well into production and mostly starting some post stuff with this movie by the time that incident happened. Now, I'm not bringing it up just to give, to give some gloom and doom to the situation, but rather to mention two things that I feel are worthy of note. Number one, some people forget that the interest in the space program here in the States was really high up until that incident. There is no denying that that interest has dwindled ever since and arguably has never actually recovered since that incident, the Challenger incident. Whether that's related or not, that's more a matter of opinion, but the facts are undeniable. Number two. As a part of that, there was a sort of optimism about space exploration and the things we could do in space up to this incident happening. And that kind of evaporated. I mention this because this is going to be relevant for what I'm about to talk about, the first big discussion point I have here in my notes. And that is the fact that this movie, I feel like it's something we needed. I know that sounds horrible, but we needed to just see a lighthearted romp about life in space. One of my favorite descriptions of Star Trek ever was the fact that it was just a lighthearted show about life in space. And I like that description. Because even if it doesn't adhere to any dogmatism of the Roddenberry ideal or anything like that, it nevertheless speaks to the optimism that lies at the core of the Roddenberry ideal. It speaks to the idealism of we can do better, we can be better, we can have better, you know? I've often felt that that's one of the reasons Star Trek... Remember I mentioned this back in Star Trek 3? I've often mentioned this is one of the reasons I feel Star Trek appeals to so many different people. There's an, an innate idealism in the series that has basically always been there. And I like that. And I think we needed that back when this movie came out. Imagine if Star Trek 2 had come out. Oh, God. <sighs> so, three perspectives... Common viewers, star, uh, science fiction fans, Star Trek fans. Virtually everyone likes this movie. Now, I mentioned back in Star Trek 1 
that if you liked the movie genuinely and you wanted to tell me why, that would be awesome. Uh, obviously, that has gone live as of the time you're watching this. But from my perspective, that 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 episode, that rumination has not gone live yet. So unfortunately, I've not been able to comment or thought about any of those things because I can't see into the future yet. I'm still working on that. So what I mentioned here is <laughs> I don't actually want you to do this because I imagine there's plenty of people who actually don't like Star Trek Four. Now, I only personally know one person. I'll discuss that in a minute. But... It's probably a lot more common to have people who don't like Star Trek 4 than people who do like Star Trek 1, hence, hence the reason I mentioned this. If you want to still tell me you hate this movie, sure. As long as you're well-reasoned in your comments and don't bash my other viewers, I'm okay with it. If you want to bash me, well, I'm not going to like it, but that's okay as well. But getting back to my point, Star Trek 1 was barely a success. It made its money back just enough to basically greenlight Star Trek 2. Star Trek 2 had a shoestring budget and was a smash, well, was a huge critical success and a minor financial success. That greenlit Star Trek 3, almost immediately, actually. And so Star Trek 3 was a small critical success and a small financial success, which allowed Star Trek 4 to happen. However, Star Trek 3, I, I mentioned this chain of events because Star Trek 4 is arguably the apex of all of Star Trek. I know this sounds weird because unfortunately we live in this world, not any other world, and money is kind of what makes this world run and has for a very long time. You see, Star Trek was doing all right. Really, it was. We were pretty much guaranteed that the franchise would continue until it started sucking. But if you remember, no other shows were on the air at this time. It was just the movie franchise. Star Trek IV was a smash hit. Destroyed the box office. Blew everything open. It was the kind of success that hadn't really been seen, arguably, since Star Wars, A New Hope. Because it was so unexpected. And that's, that's what I mean. It wasn't like there weren't big, successful movies since then. But it was such a surprise box office smash. Everyone was like, oh my god, we've got to see Star Trek Four, And it was so amazing. I myself remember seeing it in Alameda, actually. Uh, fun fact, when I was visiting my dad, uh, we were visiting and we, and we went to the theater and there's this big line. We were by this park. It was great. I was so hyped to see this movie. Everyone was. There was so much energy in the air. And we all watched it. Oh, it was such a great movie. We love it. Yeah. And it just exploded in popularity. People went back to see it again. Uh, it was one of the first films that had full VHS support uh, and, and was released very quickly on VHS very th thereafter. The it was also th the most successful Star Trek film off-seas outside of the United States. I'm curious how my European and South American uh, and otherwise, you know, Russian, Japanese, wherever you guys are from, I'm curious what you guys think of this, because I know for a fact that Star Trek uh, 1, 2, and 3 had limited releases outside of the States. Uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, either 2 or 3, I forget which, had only direct-to-tape direct releases, no theatrical releases outside of the States in certain areas. And so Star Trek 4 was actually, you know, here, here of a movie, and it was successful. Now, I'll be talking about why I think it was successful throughout the course of this view, but I think the best synopsis of it could be, it was fun. Pax himself, I've often joked with Pax that he should do, uh, we actually came up with a term for it, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was basically a, a 10 second rumination kind of thing, where Pax would basically summarize his thoughts on something in a sentence, where it would take me like an hour to talk about it. But his, 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 when I was talking about Star Trek IV with him while I was watching it, he basically said, it's a fun movie. And that was all he said, one sentence. But it actually synops synopsizes this movie very well. 
It's a fun movie. Now let me make this clear because some people tend to not really realize this, at least not when thinking about it consciously. This is, whether the comedy works or not is up to you, but there's a difference between funny and fun. The, the two are not necessarily related. Fun, it can be just kind of lighthearted, adventurous, explorative, high energy, that kind of a thing, right? Doesn't necessarily have to have comedy in it. If I can use a direct example, there's an episode of Voyager, which is among my favorite Voyager episodes, called uh, Concerning Flight, also known as the Leonardo da Vinci Adventures. And there's not a lot of comedy in that episode, but there's a lot of fun in that episode. You see the difference? And if you don't, just go watch the episode, and then watch my rumination on it. Please, Rob, show me rumination. Oh, God, please. I, I, those of you who actually watch my Voyager ruminations, I love you. You guys help keep me going, I swear. <laughs> All ten of you. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, Star Trek Four was very fun. And that kind of brings me to an interesting point. Because Star Trek Four is retarded. I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, I, I would understand if people dislike this. I only know one person. One individual who genuinely dislikes this. He's a great guy. I'm not going to drop names. Uh, he and I used to talk about Star Trek a lot. And he is... He, I loved I loved uh, chatting about Star Trek. And, and just geek in general. Geek culture in general with him. Just standing out for hours. You know, either at work or, or uh, at his place just chatting. A lot of fun. I, I love the discussions we had. And... One of my favorites was we talked about Star Trek for 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 in se across several conversations for the sake for the period of several days. I mentioned this because he didn't like Star Trek Four. Now, why didn't he like Star Trek Four? Well, let me summarize the plot for you. <clears throat> Some kind of ultra powerful probe has come to the Earth looking for humpback whales, specifically humpback whales, which are extinct. So the crew goes back in time to bring humpback whales from uh, the nineteenth uh, to twentieth century you know, our era, in other words, San Francisco, into the future to save the world. That That's the plot. Now, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. There is no avoiding it. That is a dumb plot. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. And he couldn't get over that fact. He even acknowledged most of my points about the things I enjoy about the movie. Even despite the fact that I bash this movie and its retardation and the fact that there are plot holes you could drive a freaking cruiser through... This is still my fourth favorite Star Trek film. And the only reason it's that low is because I really, really like First Contact, which, which edges it out. So, you know, it, it's one of those weird situations where it's a really dumb, silly, stupid movie that is very fun, very lighthearted, and very human. Now let's talk about why that is. I mentioned that Star Trek Three is most of why Star Trek Four happened, okay? Well... What I mean by that is, in Star Trek Three, if you watched my rumination, if you didn't, go watch it. Um, I remember he had the manacles. I know this because I just did this like two hours ago. <laughs> I'm recording these back-to-back, -back, if you're not aware, because I have so limited recording time. Uh, he had the manacles, okay? So, Nimoy was very limited in what he could do. Now, I want to discuss this in brief. And yes, I will return to the Star Trek Four Apex plot point. Don't, don't let me forget about the Apex point, Apex point. Um, what I mean, but I've often felt that there are two types of limitations when it comes to creative construction, okay? There is creative limitations and executive limitations. Now, the difference between these two is a hard-to-define point, and it's more one of those things where you could define it by pointing to an example. 
let me let me mean, say what I mean here. I've often said that creative limitation leads to ex excessive create. It leads to creative growth. It's one of the best ways to grow as a writer and to really push yourself. Star Trek II was severely creatively limited. Why? They had a shoestring budget. They had very few things they could do with this. They were probably losing Nimoy as far as a, as far as a character goes, because at the time they didn't plan for him to be with Star Trek from that point on. You know, they had all these limitations, and they worked with them and through them to create Star Trek II: The Wrath of Freaking Khan. You know, an executive limitation is usually something that's more sweeping. For example. We want you to make this kind of a piece, or we want your film to have this kind of a tone towards it. This will actually affect Star Trek V as well. I'll save that discussion for then, a few hours from now. Um, actually, I might be going to bed after this one. But uh, the point is, the other kind of executive limitation is we're watching you. And again, that's the manacles, right? You're in the manacles, you're hampered, you're on the leash, there's only so much you can do. And that was the problem with Nimoy and Bennett. Now, I mention this because Nimoy and Bennett wrote Star Trek III and Star Trek IV. Now, I'm sorry, but even though both movies have huge plot holes and severe difficulties with the issue, and I mentioned several of them in three, there is no denying Star Trek IV's script, just the script, works better than Star Trek III's. And there's also no denying that the reason for this, and everyone in the, the creative staff agreed with this, is because Nimoy was allowed to do his thing. They had a bit more of a budget, not too much more of a budget, in all honesty. Uh, it, it was about the same as III's. But they were, they were given some budgetary freedom, and they were given basic creative freedom. In other words, no executive meddling. Now, yes, I know, executive meddling is not always bad. In fact, sometimes it's good. Keep that in mind when we get to insurrection, by the way. But, um... There was no executive meddling, so the only limitations were the creative ones. Well, what were the creative limitations? Number one, we're stuck on Vulcan with a Klingon bird of prey, uh, Burrell class, with a crew that is, uh, we'll go ahead and put this on the second point, with a crew who is facing uh, court-martial and possible exile and all that fun stuff, uh, Spock, who may or may not actually still be himself and is still recovering from death, and of course we have the pregnant Savik. Yes, I know that didn't make it into final draft, but it was still an aspect of the story when they were writing it, as I'll discuss in a bit. These are dark problems and dark elements which they decided to use in a unique way, because Unlike what happened with Star Trek V, the desire to make this film lighthearted, fun, adventurous was done by the creators, by Nimoy and Bennett. They said, let's have a break. Let's do something fun. Nimoy wanted a movie with no central villain, no central antagonist, no big obstacle to overcome that was horrible. I mean, now you say that they did have a big obstacle to overcome, but at the same time, they don't defeat the probe. They reason with it. They negotiate, they diplomatize their way through. And that leads back, all the way back to what I was talking about at the beginning, that idealism, that optimism. It has actually been debated and argued that nobody dies in this film. Now that may not sound odd, but that would make this the only Star Trek film where nobody dies. Think about that for a moment. It's interesting because some of the elements of this film could be seen as very dark, but really, they aren't. It's more an aspect of us struggling to be our, ourselves, our better selves, in the face of something horrible, and succeeding at it. Which again is that idealism and optimism. It's not just that we are decent people, it's that we went through hell, and we still managed to make it out without, without having to beat our way out, without having to destroy our way out, you know? Now, I promised I'd talk about how Star Trek IV is the apex of the Star Trek series. 
Star Trek IV was a smash success. Money. It made a lot of money. It made so much money that Star Trek was greenlit for Star Trek V instantly. And one other thing happened as a result of this. Star Trek turned to Roddenberry for the first time in, at this point, I think it had been like six years, seven years, something like that. It had been a while since the motion picture. And said, Roddenberry, we're prepared to let you, we're prepared to fund you to make a new Star Trek show. Now I say this with gravity in my voice because you have to understand what this meant at the time. Remember, there was no Star Trek show. We had the animated series, ha ha ha, yeah, whatever. And we had the, uh, we had the, you know, the original series, and we had these three movies. That was it, four movies at this point. But Star Trek IV was so successful they, that Paramount was finally willing to go ahead and try a new television series, which was a big risk at the time. Try to remember again, this was the 80s, okay? Television worked differently then. Networking and uh, syndication literally worked differently back then. I'm not going to talk about it. Suffice it to say, it was a risk. But they were willing to take that risk because Star Trek IV made so much money. So I'd just like to say to every single person out there who was alive or had someone who was alive who actually went to the theaters and watched this movie, including my dad, and yeah, even including myself, thank you. Because the fact that we went and saw this movie is why it was so successful, which is why we had TNG, which is why we had DS9, which is why we had Voyager, which is why we had Enterprise. Arguably, some of that is bad. <laughs> but there's no denying, in my blunt opinion, the world would be less if we had lacked those things. We got some really good stuff out of those shows. You know? Now, Michael Okuda. I want you to memorize that name. Uh, if you don't already know it, it is actually very likely, especially since I imagine several Star Trek fans are going to be watching these ruminations, just like I had several Star Wars fans watching those ones uh, who were not previously my viewers. Michael Okuda, his first work, debatably ever. I mean, he had done some work before this, but this was effectively his first film credit right here, Star Trek Four. You, now, if you don't know who that is, he was the scene art set designer kind of guy. He was uh, basically one of the, not the graphic artists, but the guys who set up... Man, I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> he did a lot of the artistic design and directing. There we go. And he, had been, he has been working, I believe the, the total was 18 years solid the man was working on Star Trek. This is a man who gave us a lot of the visual aesthetics of half of Star Trek. So, one way or another, if you've seen anything Star Trek from Star Trek 4 to now, there is a very good chance you have seen this man's work. So, give the man some props. He's also a really cool guy, and um, he also has done some work on Star Trek Online. So, yeah. Awesome dude. And I just felt like sharing that this was his first work. So, that's another thing Star Trek 4 gave us. Michael Okuda. I really hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um... Now, I meant to mention this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to start with that Challenger thing, and then we kind of derailed, as I always do. I have the least notes of the last four films I've looked at, uh, arguably of the last ten films I've looked at, on this film that, I, that I've ever had. This is my least amount of notes. This is a problem I've had over on the episodic videos I do on every Tuesday as well. Every now and again I come across an episode which is great! I just don't have that much to talk about. So I give my thoughts, and then 20 minutes pass, and then I shut it off. It's like a really short episode. I always feel bad, because I always feel like I'm cheating you with a short episode. 
But make no mistake, the, the length of my episodes does not determine quality. I spent an hour talking about Threshold, after all. Ranting about Threshold. Um, my point is, I don't have that much to say about this movie. There were large stretches of the movie where I wasn't taking any notes. And you might be like, oh yeah, whatever. You don't understand how I do these ruminations. I have the movie going, usually on that monitor, actually. And I'm just sitting here like this. Usually I'm doing another game or whatever, you know, kind of one-handed thing or whatever, but then I'll be like, oh, no. No. I take notes constantly. But there are huge sections of this movie where I just wasn't because I was there was nothing to say. I was just enjoying the film. Because it's a good film, and it's a fun film, and I just don't have that much to analyze. Moving on. Did you know that Dr. Taylor was originally going to be a wacky UFO nut who was going to be played by Eddie Murphy? The original script was actually kind of designed with Murphy in mind believe it or not. Uh, unfortunately, there were some scheduling conflicts and we didn't get Eddie Murphy. Whether that's a good thing or not is debatable. I do think Gillian uh, Taylor, the woman, does do a very good job of the role, and I think she kind of helps sell it, especially since, although we will never see this in the films, she also added a personal touch to Star Trek VI. I also want to mention the Savic thing, though. Okay, so I, I told you I'd talk about this. Uh, there were additional lines that were cut from this film where that were very small and, and subtle. They didn't say flat out, but she wasn't holding up a sign that says, by the way, I'm pregnant with Spock's baby. But it was basically like something along the lines of, how are you feeling? Does he know? Uh, how long is it going to take? You know, what are you, when are you going to tell him? Things like that, right? It added a little bit of weight to the scenes, and those scenes were filmed, were acted, I should say. They, they actually did perform those scenes. I mention that because it probably helps explain why Savik is acting the way she does at the beginning of this film. There's a lot of gravity and a lot of weight behind the way she's presenting herself, given the circumstances, which you might wonder about if you didn't know about this, especially the way she talks with Spock, the unknowing father of her child. Now, they cut this, and this is the last we ever hear of it, and probably for good reason. They cut it, uh, number one, even though it made sense in lore and story and setting, even though it, it perfectly fit with everything that happened, they cut it because they couldn't fit it in the film. It would have just been like, I'm pregnant, and then they go off and forget about it for an hour and a half, right? And they had no real intention of doing anything with it in the future because they had no plans for that. So rather than leave that thread dangling, which they could have done and let another author take it up with Star Trek V, they decided to go ahead and chop it off and just remove the pregnancy things. But rewatch the scene where she and Amanda are watching the Burrell take off, and it adds a little bit more significance to that scene, especially the way Savik is looking at it, uh, given that pregnancy thing and the way it was filmed. <sighs> Star Trek IV did another thing that... I feel the good Star Treks have always done. 2, 4, 6, and 8 all actually do this. I know, coincidence, right? They're all ensemble pieces. Now, the main focus in all these is usually on one or two or three characters, but every character, every major character, has something to do and at least some screen time more or less dedicated to them. This is especially true in 4 and 6. This, they really bothered to go out of their way to make something for everyone to do. They wanted the scenes with Scotty and uh, uh, McCoy. They wanted the scenes over here with Chekhov. They wanted the scene with, with scenes with Uhura. They wanted the scenes with Sulu. They didn't get that one. I'll talk about that one later when we get to it. It's a bit of a damn shame, actually, that we didn't get the Sulu scene. But I mention this because I feel like that gets to the heart of what Star Trek is more for me. As I've said many times, for me, Star Trek is about the characters. It's a lighthearted show about, you know, life in space with character focus 
and character development. That's always been what Star Trek has been for me. Everything else is fluid. As long as it has start, you know, character focus, character development, I'm with it. And so for me, being able to focus on more characters like that just helps elevate in my mind. I think that's also one of the reasons why Deep Space Nine is so close in contention with the next generation for me. Well, as, whereas Next Generation had amazing character stuff, some of the secondary characters only had the occasional highlights, whereas in DS9, they go out of their way to do lots of ensemble stuff all the time, even elevating minor characters to basically be part of the ensemble cast, Nog being the most infamous example there. I digress. So Brock Peters. If you don't know that name, he's the gentleman who plays Cisco's father. He also plays Admiral Cartwright, same person, same actor, same character in Star Trek IV and Star Trek VI. This is the first of many things that links IV directly to VI. I mention this because there's no real denying this fact, okay? I'm going to talk about this again in V, but I'm going to mention it briefly here. V, if you remove it from continuity, actually makes the flow of the storylines from IV to VI smoother and make more sense. From a logical perspective, from a thematic perspective, from a character perspective, two, three, four, six could literally be edited together and make one seamless film. You insert five in there, and it's it's a round peg in a square hole. It literally does not fit. So I mention that because there's a lot of thought that that was basically done deliberately, that four was trying to set up for six. And that reminds me of another point, but uh, I'll, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Anyways, I just wanted to say that Brock Peters does a really good job of Admiral Cartwright. He has very few lines in this bit. He'll do a lot more in 6, and he does a great job as Cisco's dad. Uh, see the home front again for another great example of that. Moving on. So, I guess that's all the behind-the-scenes stuff I got. Let's talk about the probe. For those of you who don't know, there's a whole book called Probe, actually. I recommend it. It's one of the very few Star Trek novels I actually recommend you read. I also recommend you read Q Squared and the Q Continuum Trilogy. Maybe Vendetta. That's debatable. It's not that great, but it's still good. And that's it. Those are the Star Trek novels I recommend you read, in case anyone is wondering. Probe really elaborated on the probe, and it's no wonder why. They never do ever across the rest of Star Trek, so it's not in canon. But the probe is the kind of thing that almost begs an explanation. Now, I've talked against this idea before with regards to the Reapers over in Mass Effect. I felt like the Reapers shouldn't be explained. But part of that is because the Reapers were a threat, an enemy, an obstacle, an unknowable malicious force, right? The probe is decisively designed to be not an enemy. Remember, I talked about that before. We don't defeat the probe. We talk things over with the probe. We convince the probe through diplomacy, albeit a very unusual form of diplomacy, to leave us be. And it is emphasized more than once in the script that the probe had no malicious intents towards us, which is, well, it's dumb. <laughs> I'm just going to say that, but whatever. Because, I, I'm sorry, any any species or, or device which is sufficiently intelligent to be the, this grand thing that the probe intends to be would probably be aware of the fact that evaporating the oceans, ionizing the atmosphere, and blocking the planet off of, off from its sun when they're trying to contact this creature on that planet is probably not a good idea. Especially since, don't forget, it can turn that off. It can turn off its doom beam or whatever you want to call it that it's, it's sending out constantly because it does, and so even as it's leaving, the beam is off and everything's restoring power, right? So don't give me that. <laughs> Whatever, whatever. Point being, the probe begged an explanation, and none was ever forthcoming. Uh, 
Uh, the one we got in the book was actually kind of interesting. Basically, the probe was actually not that intelligent. It was basically a very, 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 very basic artificial intelligence running the thing, working for an ancient, you know, uh, aquatic-based species and all, for all intents and purposes. Um, and there's a lot that can be discussed and thought about. Sci-Fi Debris infamously spent a while just discussing the possibilities of evolution and, and what could evolve in order to create something like a probe, etc., etc. I'm not going to discuss any of that here because, frankly, I don't feel there's anything interesting worth uh, talking about it especially since it's already been talked about, so I don't really have anything to add to the discussion, but I do want to mention one thing. One of the things I liked about the probe was its presence is what caused those problems. This is something that I've always just liked the, the execution of when it's done well. I mentioned this back in... Uh, I think that was Scorpion. How the mere existence of Borg cubes would distort warp space and subspace around them because of the massive amount of power that a single cube uses in order to function, simply to move an amount of mass that quickly and that and with that level of agility is insane, right? And so I like the idea that a cube going by would literally disrupt local space. It's the same kind of idea. I like the fact that this probe, just by being here, is causing all these problems and hitting these power drains. One other thing, though, I want to mention about that. There's a line about a crew of the Saratoga or the Yorktown, I forget which, that they are literally, the, their engineer has an idea. I love this. It's a great idea, by the way. And this is some really good thinking. They're going to deploy a solar sail. Why? They're going to, I'm sorry, they're going to build and then deploy a solar sail in order to get enough power in order to keep the life support system going long enough to keep them alive, to keep them surviving. Something about that really struck me, not just as horrifying, but ingenious. The probe, by its very nature, is actually a very horrifying thing when you think about it. Now, it has been mentioned uh, in Star Trek Online and in one episode of Voyager that one of the worst things that could happen... I'm sorry, no, this actually came up in TNG as well. My apologies. One of the worst things that could happen for the Star Trek universe is the loss of faster-than-light travel. And that's absolutely true. The very way of life of everywhere, basically, would come to a screeching halt if faster-than-light travel went away. But one of the things I find more horrifying in a more generalized sense that it goes past just Star Trek to all science fiction that involves space in general is losing power. It's such a mundane, simple thing. It's, it's one of those wonderful things that's a post-apocalyptic scenario. If you don't know what I mean by that, in a post-apocalypse, things that would normally be considered mundane or normal or easy, or easy, the kind of things you don't even think about, suddenly become huge things that you have no idea how to, how to surmount these problems, and they are life-threatening problems. It's the same concept. You're on a ship in space. You lost power. And again, that whole power cell thing, they needed some energy source, some kind of in, in, influx in order to keep breathing. I love that, and it is so quietly, subtly horrifying. And the whole time, that thrumming... Think about that. That is a truly terrifying concept. It is fascinating because, again, the probe is not designed to be this horrible, you know, eldritch nightmare thing. But it really is, on the level of, uh, at least on the level with, I'd say, is the crystalline entity, which I'll be talking about when I get to TNG. It almost makes me wonder if the original intent was not to make something this horrifying, and then they decided to amp it up a little bit for the sake of selling it to the audience. Because one of the things the first act of this movie does extremely well is really sell the threat to the audience. There's genuine tension, genuine drama, as ship after ship after space dock 
after planet are shut down. Planetary power goes offline. Think about that for a moment. Planetary power goes offline. And they have to start drawing on energy reserves. And they have no access to the sun. That's horrifying. And there's so much that could be done with that. And it's very clear that this is a p possible extinction scenario. They literally only have enough energy to get out a single distress call. And that's it. Before they are drained. Now... I mentioned, uh, let, let's go ahead and get, get further in my notes here. I, I, that's all I really have to say about the probe other than one last thing. Um, there's a line the Klingon ambassador gives that says, there shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. This is another one of the hints that was put into Star Trek IV that indicates that they were already kind of thinking in this direction with Star Trek VI, or rather what was supposed to be the next movie, Star Trek V. Um, they already had ideas about leaning towards the Klingon uh, Federation reunification thing. Now, yes, I know how Star Trek VI was made, and yes, I know the original script had nothing to do with that, but that's because of budget issues, and we'll get to that in Star Trek, because point being, they were laying seeds. They were deliberately laying seeds. They've been doing this uh, pretty much ever since, too, to try and uh, set up a situation where the, fin you know, the big thing, the big conflict of the movies would actually become the Klingons versus the Federation, whether it would erupt into all-out war or it would lead into a resolution. Keep in mind, when this movie came out, Star Trek IV, the Cold War was still active, albeit very much in its heydays, and most people didn't even realize how close it was to finally being over. So this was still something that was in the minds of most people, including the creators of this movie. So they were definitely putting little hints of the fact that that Cold War needed to be resolved. Now, another comment. Um, I don't know why, but I always had this vague impression that they were on Vulcan for like a week or two while they were doing retrofits on the Burrell, and then they were going to head out. No, they were on Vulcan for three months. Okay, so... <laughs> the crew of the Enterprise sabotages the Excelsior, um, steals the Enterprise, uh... You know, damages Starfleet people, goes to Genesis, uh, watches Genesis be destroyed, and then lands on Vulcan. And at no point in time, in three months, think about how long of a period of time that is for a moment. Does Especially given it's like a day journey between Vulcan and Earth. Because Vulcan is like literally next door from a galactic perspective. And at no point in time did anyone in Starfleet or the Federation, by the way, Vulcan's a part of the Federation, think to go and be like, hey guys, you know... No, three months, they just let them be. That can be explained, and I believe is in the novelization. The idea, the idea being that the Federation was basically seeing if Kirk and crew would turn themselves in, and if they would, then there would be leniency that they were going to offer them with regards to their actions. Now, and the other, now, the reason why they didn't turn themselves in earlier was because they were staying for Spock's sake. Now, I mention this because, yes, they were retrofitting the, you know, the, the, the bounty, or the Botany Bay, excuse me, or was it the bounty? No, it was the bounty. The HMS bounty. Um, the bird of prey. They were modifying this 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 thing for that period of time, but at any point in time, they could have gotten another ship to go back, right? But it is actually mentioned in the book that the, the reason they were staying was for Spock. They wanted to make sure Spock was okay, and three months for recovering from death is a lot more reasonable, especially since if you consider the fact that he hasn't actually recovered from death yet, he is still being re-educated. He is still testing his mind. He is still trying to make sure he functions properly as an individual. And at the beginning of the movie, he doesn't. So keep that in mind, too. 
So it does make a degree of sense. It's just one of those, wow, really? Situations. Not quite a plot hole. Um, so Spock's intellect. I mention this because some people seem to have gotten this impression, I've noticed, that all Vulcans are super intelligent. That is actually not true. Um, there are plenty of stupid Vulcans. Spock is ultra-intelligent. Spock is ultra-intelligent because Spock is ultra-intelligent. He's that smart. He pushed himself. He is that good. There's a reason he was able to help fix the engines in one. There's a reason he was the one who, in order to fix the engines in two. There's a reason he's the one who was able to figure out how to do, uh... The, the the warp the, the calculations to go to do time travel in a freaking bird of prey twice because he is that much of a genius that person not Vulcans in general I've always found that interesting though because the hidden undercurrent of that has been true ever since the original series namely the reason he is so intelligent is not just because of his potential to be so but because he has always driven himself to be so after all he is part human and he's always had a reason to push himself for that, hasn't he? That's mentioned all the way back in uh, uh, Journey to Babel, if you'll recall. And it ties back in here when he meets his mother. You know, and he's doing a, three hyper-intelligent tests simultaneously and acing them until the computer asks, how do you feel? Which again leads into that thing. Now, Spock's arc actually, the how do you feel thing is a critical point in Spock's arc. While he had been growing character-wise up to and including the Wrath of Khan and his death, it's hard to explain how well this works. Basically, you, could, you would think of the fact that his death and rebirth reset his character progress because he starts this movie as more, kind of as he did in Star Trek I, more Vulcan than himself. But by the end of this movie, he has regained a lot of his sense of self. Indeed, one of his final lines of the movie is to tell his father, Sarek, to tell his mother, I feel fine. Understand, not just because, you know, not just to give an answer, but because he understands the question. See, this is why this is a critical part of Spock's character arc, one that will be finally finished in Star Trek VI. Spock is not a Vulcan. Spock is not a human. If you're paying attention, this is the same character arc that would eventually be patterned onto Seven over on Voyager. In other words, they are not either world, and any attempt to be more one or the other is artificial. They attempt, therefore, their, their final realization, the thing that finally pushes them towards that final culmination of their character arc, is being themselves in the middle, the real them. Rather than trying to be either, they are simply a hybrid. And that's the thing I like about Spock. His, his line in this speaks so much of this, because his death did reset him in a way, but it did so in such a wonderful way that it forced him to then move past his Vulcan training, again, and past everything that he experienced in order to realize where he was. Because, keep in mind, throughout this movie, he has the Vulcans on one side pushing him to be more Vulcan, and Kirk on crew on one side pushing him to be more human. And in the end, he disagrees with both and goes with the middle. And this is wonderfully explained when he says the line, you know, when, when they, we, we must, I concur with McCoy, we must go after Chekhov. Is that the logical thing to do? No, but it is the human thing to do. It's an in-between thing. He acknowledges it is not logical. He acknowledges it does not make sense in the cold calculus of the situation, but he acknowledges that it is, in his opinion, the right thing to do in that circumstance. And I like that. This will finalize in Star Trek VI, but I'll get there eventually. The probe, yeah, blah, 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 I already talked about that. Uh, one other interesting facet. Uh, I mentioned how horrifying the probe is. It's kind of funny. Because I always had this really weird impression that these people were on these ships for long periods of time. But in truth, it's about a day. 
Now, a day without power is still terrifying, but it's nowhere near as bad as I always imagined. Basically, Probe shows up, oh god, everything's going bad, and then Kirk goes back in time and then returns immediately. He literally returns a few seconds before he leaves, actually, if you look at the timeline of it. So, um, yeah, uh, they actually only go without power for an extremely short period of time, which also contributes to that lack of, you know, death situation that I mentioned earlier. Uh... <laughs> now here's a funny fact remember back in Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 2 how there were no ships in range of Earth this will come back up in generations as well and the next movie Star Trek 5 why are there no ships in range of Earth why are there no ships in range of I mean I already talked about this I don't want to cover the issue again I just want to say this Star Trek 4 does it right Uhura is trying to get signals, and she's not getting any ships in range of Earth. And for the first time, that means something. It's not like, oh, of course there's no ships in range of Earth. There never are. Instead, it's, there's no ships in range of Earth. Something's wrong. And it's their first sign of something wrong. I just felt like mentioning that. <laughs> um, so, let's talk about the construction of this movie for a moment. This movie, like I said, is, is kind of plot holy and has a lot of nitpicks, and I mean a lot of nitpicks. If anybody out there has actually read the Nitpicker's Guide to insert thing here, uh, there's several Star Trek Nitpicker Guides. I actually have all of them, because I enjoy, I enjoy reading them. Um, the entry for Star Trek Four is huge, <laughs> and it should be. There's a lot of, of nits in this movie, because Harv Bennett doesn't really think that way. We, show, we saw this in Star Trek Three. But now that the manacles are off, he and Nimoy both really show how they can get really creative with things to get across what they wanted. For example, they constructed an adventure that looks like the uh, the way it looks like is the fact that they got the bird in three was so they could do what they did in four because the bird literally is perfect. You know, the burrell, the, the bird of prey, is literally perfect for their needs in four. They, it's it's fast and maneuverable. It can land and go into atmosphere. It can cloak so they don't get to be seen by the people of the past. And it can be disposable because it's not the Enterprise or any other Starfleet ship. All of these things fit the needs of the story perfectly. But truthfully, what they did was they looked at what they had, the bird, and said, okay, here are the bullet points about it. How can we use these? Now... It is also worth noting this is not the first Star Trek time travel episode, but it is worth noting this is one of the first. Some people tend to forget that because Star Trek and science fiction in general has been married to the uh, time travel content concept for a really long time, arguably since science fiction has been a thing. See, uh, you know, the time machine for a great old example of this idea. But I mention this because Star Trek is, in my opinion, extremely hit or miss when it comes to time travel. They either hit it all out of the park... You know, this episode being a good episode, uh, one. Um, uh, oh, God, Tapestry being a, a good example of one. Um, there are others. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just going to skip over it. There are others. <laughs> and it gets debatable, of course. And then sometimes they do it, and it's just... Huh? But I feel like the times they use time, tra time travel best, this is just my opinion, of course, is when they use time travel to as, as part of the story rather than a story centered around time travel. I actually talked about this um, back in my... Oh, what was it? It wasn't Kingdoms of Amalur. It was a rumination I did recently by my perspective. And I can't remember what it was. It was a Command and Conquer? Anyways, it was one of my recent uh, things where I talked about how, in my opinion, very few time travel stories were good. It was mostly 
stories that involve time travel, and whereas the time travel was in service of something else, you know, characterization or setting building or whatever, that actually worked. And this is a good example of that, is, is all I'm trying to say. This is a good example of the time travel being effectively incidental and more a way to get as a vehicle to get to the actual fun adventure characterization of, of the past. So I mentioned... Uh, there's a lot of nits in this this movie, and there are so many. I actually had this funny thought of literally pulling out my nitpickers guide. It's in that bin right over there, and just going down the list and, and just listing them, because there's dozens. I have decided not to do this. Um, I think I'll mention like two over the course of this. Uh, how does the bird of prey, which is sitting in Golden Gate Park, by the way, I have lived in and been to San Francisco many many times. Golden Gate Park is not that empty. How does a freaking Burrell class bird of prey just sit in the middle of the park? Plain as day, really. Big indents, wham right into it, and nobody notices it for however many days they're here. I... Now, if I'm not mistaken, they actually only stay here three days, I want to say. Because there's the first day, and then they do that, and then and that's the end of that, and then there's the second day and the third day. So I think, yeah, they're only actually here three days. But even for three days, really? <laughs> Moving on. That being said, uh, where are we next? Uh, where are we? Where are we? Uh... Okay, so I like the fact that they showcase the fact that the Burrell, I'm sorry I keep calling it that, I, I think in terms of classes of ships rather than, you know, bird of prey. I, I'm, I'm the guy who called it the executor uh, for forever rather than superstar destroyer, to give you another example. Um, I like the fact that the bird is shown as just barely having the power to make the thing. I like that because it emphasizes two things. One, why don't they do time travel more often? Well, it's difficult to do and very, very, very easy to screw up. Uh, Star Trek Online actually touches on this with a mission where you are authorized to do time travel in this one circumstance, and it might screw up. And if you screw up... Eh, um, the second reason I like it is it emphasizes that they're in the bird, which is a much, much weaker ship in every way to the, uh, the Constitution-class cruiser. So I like that. Um, then we get into an art film. Now, when I first saw this in the film, I thought that there was actually, like, this was legitimately my, my thought process. I thought there was a problem with the film. I thought they had accidentally spliced some other film onto it or something like that. Because it just kind of shows this weird artsy crap that has nothing to do with anything and is stupid. And I'm phrasing it that way because when I was rewatching it this time, I'm like, and I've rewatched Star Trek IV many times. But usually I just skip over this scene. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, there's a series of artsy crap things that happen while they're traveling through time to show that they're traveling through time, I guess. Um, one rewatching it this time, I'm like, I'm not going to skip through it this time. You know, I'm an adult. It's been several years since I rewatched this. I talked about this in Star Trek II, remember? Rewatching it, I had a new perspective on it. So I'm going to rewatch it with a new perspective, and I hated it. It was stupid. <laughs> in fact, it was even stupider. I, I sat, I'm sitting here watching this like, Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, I get the quotes, which are from the, the future, which we're passing back through. So, okay, I get the audio design. Why am I staring at little plastic scene versions of heads while a whale fades its way into the foreground and then a mannequin falls into the water and then we have a scene of some... Ra this is stupid! <laughs> I love this film, but I hate that scene. If I could just chop it out. Ugh. They don't do it at the end when they do it, too. Um, so... For those of you who don't know, this is uh, one of the only Star Trek films to ingo in involve cursing. Um, one of the very few. The S word is mentioned, uh, damn is said all over the place, hell is said all over the place. It's, it's fascinating, really. And 
it's also part of an in-joke, but it was done deliberately because they were trying to invoke the overall linguistic style of everyday, modern-day life. This is the 80s again, remember, uh, of the time, especially in San Francisco. And again, speaking as someone who's been in San Francisco, they actually got it pretty accurately, all things considered. With the exception of Spock, but I'll get to that in a moment. Now, this is the point at which I start having less notes. Okay, like all of this, this is like up to like 10 minutes, 20 minutes in the film. The rest of this page is just the, re the entire rest of the film. I just don't have that much to talk about. For example, I love the humor and light tone of the, the certain scenes. I like the way that they are portrayed. The directing is great. Nimoy does a great job of pulling performances out of the actors to be that perfect blend of not stupid, but ignorant. There is a difference between stupidity and ignorance. Ignorance is lack of knowledge, okay? And the crew has a clear lack of knowledge. Now they grow and adapt, but that's relevant and, and necessary for the humorous tone of it. I also love, love, love the nuclear vessels scene. For those of you who don't know, nuclear vessels is arguably the second most well-known line in all of Star Trek, across all of the franchise. The only reason it's second is because... Otherwise it would be first. Now... I love this because there's some wonderful subtlety to it. First of all, I, I love it just on the face of it. I'm trying to get to Alameda. We are looking for your nuclear vessels. Excuse me, I'm trying to get... Yes, that's what I said. I want to get to Alameda, but where is Alameda? <laughs> I love that, first of all. Second of all, Chekhov and Uhura just sell it. But third of all, the first guy they ask is a cop who they ask about, and he's like, he's all nice and helpful. Yeah, how can I help you? And then they say what they want, and he never says another line. He just stares at them. The camera even takes a moment to focus on him, staring at them. I find this especially funny because, again, 80s, Cold War. This was still actually happening. And an incredibly Russian guy comes into the middle of San Francisco asking where we keep our nuclear vessels. I cannot help but be amused every time I see that scene. And, and just because if I don't mention it, someone will bring it up. Uh, the woman who spoke, the woman who actually answered them, uh, she was asking the assistant director, should we talk? And they were basically not giving her a straight answer. They were, they were just like brushing her off because she was an extra. Uh, for those of you who don't know, extras literally have different rules and regulations for how they work in Hollywood. This has always been true. Um, and so... She was just being brushed off, so she goes up and they ask her, and she wanted to answer them. And she gave the answer you saw on screen, and they ad-libbed it. And the production crew really liked the ad-lib. But the problem is, extras go under different rules. So they literally had to get this one woman, who was even uncredited for this, and to my knowledge, never did film ever again, into the, into the screen, uh, screen Actors Guild, the SAG, specifically so they could then pay her the 50 bucks for this one line. Because that's kind of how Hollywood works. Just a fun little anecdote. Um, where are we? So then there's the punk on the bus. Now, this is hilarious, especially in hindsight. Uh, this is one of those things that I have new perspective on. Once upon a time, I would have called someone in, in leather studs with, you know, uh, piercings everywhere, punk hairdo, and uh, music playing, which doesn't even have any curse words in it, I might add. I was actually listening to the lyrics this time. It's actually very tame music. Um... You know, that would call that, like, oh, my God, a weird kind of person, right? <laughs> How naive I seem now. That is so mundanely normal by today's standards. Oh, my God. I know people who are just like that who are, like, 
less weird than I am. <laughs> I just thought I'd share that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that was actually inspired by real life, by the way. Leonard Nimoy was actually on a bus uh, recently around the development of this film and uh, before he ended up writing it. And there was a gentleman on the bus with, with that kind of outfit and that kind of music going. And, of course, he couldn't nerve pinch him in real life. Pity. So, before I get into the rest of the movie, let's talk about whaling. Don't mistake me. I think it's a good thing that we don't genocide species. I think genociding in general is bad. I know that's a weird and unusual opinion to have. But I think, bear with me, folks. I think that genocide's bad, okay? But I'm also one of those people who is has no problem eating meat. And I know what that involves. In fact, I've been to butcher plants. I've seen that kind of thing. Uh, I'm one of those people who it's hard to gross me out. You're like, oh, if only you knew what went into your meal. And I just start laughing. And I'm like, dude, if I was actually eating from a cow, this would still be freaking gross, okay? Food's gross, okay? We just got to get over that fact. What matters is how it tastes when it actually reaches me how it, and the texture. The texture's a big thing for me, too. Bad textures tend to hit my gag reflex. Same thing with my sister. Um, so... You know, if you're if you're trying to gross me out, that's not going to work. But I have no problem eating meat. I have no problem using animals, having leather, that kind of thing. That's not something that's ever bothered me. If you want to bash me for that, that is your right. As long as you don't go overboard with it, I'm totally okay with it, okay? You have the right to your opinion just the same as I do. I mention this because for those of you who are not around in the 80s, um, let's just say that people got a little bit overboard with their love affair of aquatic mammals in general uh, dolphins being a really big one whales being a big one this is pretty much the time in which sea world became huge and and parks like that became a big deal uh i i should know i actually went to sea world a lot it's really fun it's where i got jaws actually although i was a lot younger when i got jaws but anyways um i just mentioned this because <laughs> william shatner on the director's cut of the or on the commentary of this actually speculated that Maybe whales may even be more intelligent than us. That quote, I mean, Shatner didn't actually mean that, and you can tell he didn't actually mean it, but that quote is the kind of thing some people actually meant, and you can tell that some people actually think that way, and that's, in my opinion, going a little bit too far the other way. Um, I think we can strike a balance between, you know, ah, and die to everything. I, I just think that some kind of balance is, is mentioned here. Uh, I only mention this, though, especially because I've always felt like whaling is one of those things that was actually very crucial to human development because whales are an incredible resource. But they shouldn't be viewed as just a resource. See, that, that's that balance thing here. You know, it's one of those things, yes, we do this, but we regret doing this. And indeed, the goal is to reach a point where we don't have to do this anymore. That's one of the goals of technological progress, is to no longer be reliant on extermination in order to exist, Right. Right? Am I with? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're with this. Okay. Now that I've been flayed alive by half my viewers, I mention this because during the whale tour thing, they preach at the viewer. And this is it's something that immediately bothered me. I mean, they just flat out preach about human stupidity. Human stupidity. Whales are our friends. Human stupidity. Whales are friends. Human stupidity. And they just bash it into you. Now, I grant you humans can be pretty dumb, but God, guys, stop preaching to me. I hate being preached at. I hate it. I always do. I hate it when someone gets up on a soapbox. So that got to me. But I, I had a thought in the middle of this. I want you to imagine you went to a whale tour because you want to see a whale. Now, 
whether or not that's unusual to you or not may you know it depends on you and your perspectives but i that's a fairly understandable motive i would think i want to go see some whales i like whales they're cool they're interesting i want to learn more about them Duh. okay we're with it let's go watch them be butchered alive and sliced open and have their guts spilled out over the boat why is that on the whale tour now the real answer is the obvious one it's there to a preach at us which i mean you know hug the whales kind of thing but also b because it's necessary for the plot. I mentioned those plot holes. I'd only mentioned a few of that. This is another one of them. It's just, why does that happen? Moving on, moving on, moving on. So then Spock mind melds with a whale. It's worth noting that this was Nimoy's idea. Um, Kirk's reaction's great. I really was. It, 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 it just... <laughs> he's just, he's just, he has no idea what to do about it. He literally is just like, okay, whatever. We may have just lost everything. Um, gotcha. Trying to recover. That being said, I like how, uh, what's her name? Gillian's, uh, response, Taylor, that's her name. Dr. Taylor's response is so angry. I find that interesting because I've been to SeaWorld in this era, no less, in, in the 80s. That kind of thing, people trying to get into the things just because they wanted to be closer to the, the whales and the dolphins and whatnot, was actually really common. They started setting up rules and regs specifically to prevent that. They started setting up specific things where you could, under safe circumstances, get close to or touch a dolphin or swim with a dolphin to satisfy that desire. So seeing a guy jump in a tank with a humpback when obviously no one stopped him getting in or out, I'm not sure why she was so bothered by that, but I digress. The hell. <laughs> so for the rest of them, for the next like two scenes, Spock interjects. This is great construction. In the previous scene on the bus, um, they talk about colorful metaphor, colorful, colorful metaphors, and how people speak with interesting colloquialisms. Right. Well, Spock then spends the next two scenes adding the hell to almost every sentence he says. The hell I didn't. I didn't, the hell this, the hell they aren't you. And he just does it in the perfect tone. Uh, from what I understand, they had to take, do several takes because Nemo himself just had trouble maintaining that perfect tone of utter, you know, just un lack of understanding of what he's saying. You know, the hell I didn't, the hell this is, you know, that kind of thing. It's really funny, though, and it really lends itself to the very Abbott and Constello feel that Kirk and Spock have. Their, their duo on the beach and in the, in the truck is just amazing. That's all I have to say about it. Their, their, their interplay and counterplay between each other is phenomenal. Moving on. Um, so then we get to Scotty and McCoy's duo, which is also awesome. Now, I've said it before and I've said it again. DeForest Kelly's great. And James Doohan, well, he had some issues, nevertheless was really great. And uh, he really, really sold his performance of the uppity, no, I'm not, I refuse to do this kind of a thing. And I don't, I don't know, just watching the two of them act together was, was really brilliant. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I did not point this out, but um, Scotty starts typing like this and manages to plug in transparent aluminum into a Macintosh Plus from the Apple Computer Company system. Speaking from experience, those computers cannot display images as fast as, as it was displaying, un and unless it was actually a pre-rendered uh, image slideshow, which is what they actually did for the show. Thank you, Michael Okuda. Um, just felt like pointing it out. It's all. I just noticed it. Don't hate me. Um, doesn't bog me. It's, just, it's something that occurs to me every time I see that scene. It's still a great scene, because after all, who can forget... <clears throat> you, you can't see my mouse, can you? Wait, I got my spare mouse ads over there. Computer? Hello, Computer? 
Uh, and then there was supposed to be Sulu's scene. Why didn't we get Sulu's scene? Let me talk about the transparent aluminum really quick. Um, first of all, it's a fascinating idea. It's very similar to what Star Wars actually does you, which is called transparasteel. In other words, see-through material that is effectively as strong as armor, uh, which is very critical for Star Wars ships to function the way they do. But um, I like the idea of transparent aluminum, and it has some real-life applications, by the way, which people have been looking at for several years at this point. Um... I also find it interesting because they introduce a form of paradox in this. The funny thing is the novel expands on this some. Apparently in the novel, the gentleman who they're talking to, you know, Scotty, McCoy pulls Scotty aside and is like, oh my God, you know, we can't give this to guy. And Scotty says, it's okay. This is the guy who invented it. I recognize his name, you know. So they either are not changing history or are in fact completing history by doing this. I mention this because... This is, in my opinion, the best way to approach time travel. And whenever Star Trek does this, I feel it's, it's some of the better episodes. When time is a complete circle. In other words, everything that ever happened always happened and always will happen. You never change time. Anything you go back and do already happened. You follow? So there was never an original timeline. It was always just one line. Now, I've, I've failed at describing this to some people, so I'm not even going to keep going. I just felt like mentioning that. So, Sulu's scene. Yeah, so we lost Sulu's scene. He gets a very brief bit where he gets to check out the... Uh, oh, I forget... Uh, the, the, the helicopter. And then he gets to fly the helicopter in a great little bit where he's flying this helicopter basically expertly in a very complicated and deft maneuver, and then he turns on the, he the, the windshield wipers, and he's like, whoa, whoa, no, wait! Great scene. Great comedy factor there. But I mention it because his original scene was he was supposed to encounter a young child who was actually his great-great-grandfather. There was supposed to be some interactions with that, and he was supposed to talk about him and uh, the way his family had moved here, and, and, and they were thinking about moving away, but he really liked San Francisco. There was going to be a whole character piece there that we lost because the child actor, I know this is going to surprise you, was a child actor. And as anybody who works in, in any form of film or games or any fictional production whatsoever knows, don't work with child actors if you can avoid it. They're just almost never worth it. And this kid could not perform to save his life. Um, I'm not necessarily blaming him on that, but it is a shame that we lost that scene. The, she the scene's still in the novelization if you want to read it. So I like Kirk the subtlety in Kirk's approach to Dr. Taylor. It, and, and I know you're like, what are you talking about? He flat out hits on her and then is just bluntly honest with her. Yes, but there is an undercurrent there that I really enjoy. It speaks to that idealism and optimism again. Kirk is in a horrible situation. And in most modern works, someone who has gone back to the past would probably not even try to tell them the truth. Because they're not going to believe them. They're not going to believe we're from the future or from space. They're going to think we're some crazy or wacko or we're lying or we're selling something or we're on drugs or whatever. I mean, there's so much cynicism and so much bitterness. There's no possible way that we would actually open ourselves up to the idea of telling them the truth and having them actually believe us. Kirk, being willing to do that with her, speaks quietly to that sort of idealism, that optimism, that hope in the human ideal. The idea that this person might be better than just the sum of her parts, and she might be willing to understand and trust, trust him in the way he is reaching out to trust her. He trusts her first, remember. He tells her the truth. She doesn't believe him, weirds out about it a bit, but moves on with her life. But then she comes back and repays that trust by actually trying to find him and you know trying to save the whales. 
I like that. And again, it's that optimism and idealism that's basically the theme of this movie, if you're paying attention. It's the closest thing this movie has to a theme other than one other theme, which I'll be getting to pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. Uh, poor Chekhov. I love Chekhov's scene. Walter Koenig is... He plays a, a, a decent amount of, of roles. He's played... Um, you know, the grizzled veteran, he's played the incredibly evil bastard, he's played the young, inexperienced officer, he's played the seasoned veteran, you know, who's, who's, who's looks back fondly. He, he can do some wide variety, but here, he plays the straight man, utterly straight-faced. He sells it. I can't even explain it, just watch the scenes. He, he really gets some great comedic material with his interrogation and his run. And, um, so it's, it's, it's a really, really great scene. I mention this especially, though, because Chekhov is an interesting aspect to this. Okay. <clears throat> Why, what happens after this is basically the hospital scene, which is my personal favorite scene in the movie, by the way. I know it's like several scenes, but what it's my personal favorite section of the movie is the hospital section. I know that's not an uncommon opinion, by the way, and I'd love to hear your guys' favorite sections as well, especially if it's the hospital section, so we can jazz about how awesome it is. But um, let's talk about why. First reason why is McCoy. This is his time to shine. DeForest Kelly is awesome, and he is in full McCoy mode. Okay, we're here, and we have to do this, and we've got to be professional, and... Oh my god, what's wrong with you, woman? Oh god, here, let me fix you with, with two buttons, basically. Okay, and he can't help... He literally cannot help himself from helping people. There's an implication that's never stated outright that, that while they were looking around, McCoy helped more than just that one woman. I can't imagine how many people were fully healed just from the stuff he had on his bag as he's walking through this hospital. But it also uh, leads me to an interesting thought process. Even by the original series' time, even by Star Trek IV's time in the timeline, Star Trek's medicinal knowledge is so far past ours. Keep in mind, this was the 80s. We are now in 2015. And there, I've just dated this video for anybody who's curious. Watching this in 20 years. Oh, who is this idiot talking about Star Trek? I've never even heard of that show. He, uh, even now, our technology and med medical technology is practically medieval when it's compared to even the original series' technology. And I've always lamented that. I mean, just to get across a point, we have the technology to scan you through various ways, but those scans are not guaranteed to get answers or results. It's just possible to find certain types of problems that we can then hope we interpret correctly and then hope that the results we have, the way we have to deal with what we assume is the problem is going to actually solve it. We are basically still medieval scientists, is what I'm trying to say, with regards to, when, when compared to the Star Trek medical technology. So it's fully understandable how McCoy would act this way. Uh, never mind by the time we get to like Voyager's time when the hypospray can cure half the things that exist on the Earth right now, but moving along. Second reason I love the hospital adventure, Spock. I already mentioned this. It is the human thing to do. It is the full culmination of his arc. He has fully reached the point now where he has decided on whom he is. And he even shows his understanding of this in a subsequent scene. Forgive me for skipping ahead after the hospital scene for a moment. Kirk says, you know, Spock says, I will have to make a guess. And Kirk says, that's wonderful. And Spock says, I don't think he understood. And McCoy says, no, Spock. He means that he feels better with your guesses than other people's facts. And Spock took that as a great compliment and that it meant something to him. Again, Spock, not human, not Vulcan. I like that. Third reason I love the uh, hospital scene is obvious, really. There's very high energy in it. It has real tension with regards to Chekhov. 
And it's really funny. Post, oh shoot, I, I, I didn't, I wrote it down too quickly. Post polyndal upper abdominal distortion or something like that, cramps. I, I actually used to have that phrase memorized just for fun. When someone would be like, what's wrong with you? I have post it's worth noting, I actually, actually used to suffer from cramps in, in real life, so it was relevant. Um, you didn't want to hear that. So, and I already talked about the medicine thing. Uh, so I, I meant this, I'm pretty sure this is the last plot hole I'm going to point out. They drive back, or no, they beam back. Why do they beam back to the park and not the ship? Now you might be like, well, they're leaving her here. Yeah, so you beam back to the ship. And then you beam her down. It's really simple. Instead, they beam back to the park and then force poor Chekhov, who I remind you is still recovering from injuries, one of which included possibility of a coma, because he had an injured artery up here, remember that? To hobble up onto the, 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 the ship. So Ch Chekhov and, and McCoy hobble onto the ship, but Kirk stays behind. The ramp even closes behind them. Why is that? Well, so Kirk can beam up. Well, why does Kirk beam up? So she can jump on board. And then she jumps on board. Well, why don't they kick her off? Now, the thing is, this was whole contrived. Because it wasn't necessary. Why not just bring her with initially? There is an in-character, in-lore reason to bring her with. Ignore, I mean, literally, it could just be one of those things where she says, can I come with you? And he's like, watch, we might not go anywhere. We might be dead. We might not make it out of the sun. And she, she could be like, well, no, I have nothing here and blah, blah, blah. And either Kirk or one of the other crew points out the fact they have no whale biologists in the future because they don't have humpback whales. Someone with her knowledge and expertise would be invaluable in maintaining the new species that they have just, they're intending to reintroduce into the environment, an environment which has not had humpback whales in years, decades, centuries, I believe, actually. I forget the actual time, but it's been a while. So... There's a perfectly good in-character reason for bringing her with. Why didn't they go that route instead of this incredibly contrived situation? But again, that, that's my last complaint. That's all I got. Um, I like the fact that the whalers speak Finnish. Just interesting little ass anecdote there. I also like the fact that they make a point that beaming up the whales and the water they're in is a big deal. And that only someone like Scotty could pull that off. They never say it outright, but there's that implication that only someone as skilled as Scotty could pull off a very careful, very delicate transport like that. And I like that. Because if you think about it, beaming up a person is difficult enough in its own right, but they've probably got that down at this point. Beaming up a person and everything around them, which is technically matter, in this case the water, that's a lot trickier, especially since you want to bring up an exact type of cube and the whales without getting, without like chopping off part of the whales or getting too much water, which would burst the whales. You know, it's a very precise thing. So I like how they did that. Uh, and then their final task is, in, is fleeing the ship and ensuring the whales don't drown, which I find to be a wonderful irony, uh, the idea of the whales drowning. It is something that could happen. They are mammals. They do need to breathe. And if they were stuck in a ship and could not get out, yeah, they'd probably die. That being said, uh, for those of you curious, and that's absolutely none of you, but I'm sharing it anyways because this is my show. Um, sorry. One of the things I used to do when I was younger is I used to practice breathing exercises and holding my breath. No real reason for doing it. I just wanted to. It was, it was part of the, the regiment I went through back when I started doing exercises, which was about this point in history. So when I'd rewatch this movie, I'd always hold my breath with Kirk. You know, he goes under, and I hold my breath the whole scene until he breaks the water to see if I can do it. Well, I decided to do it this time just to see if I could do it, you know, back like I used to. 
Well, not only can I, but apparently either my lung capacity has gotten way better or I'm just in better shape than I was back then, which is hilarious because I am so ill and so in so much pain all of my days. Uh, but I was able to do it without even trying. <laughs> now, let's talk about the fact that there was one point at which the executives wanted to meddle. I mentioned back before that they had taken their shackles off and they said, go Nimoy. They wanted to do one thing. They wanted to make one change to Star Trek IV. They wanted subtitles! Now you're like, huh? What do you mean subtitles? No, I mean subtitles between the whale and the probe. They wanted subtitles to show the dialogue between the whales and the probe. I got nothing, guys. If any of you out there have a legitimate reason why that would be a good thing, please feel free to share. I got nothing. That just sounds ridiculous. I actually like it without the subtitles, without knowing the conversation piece, especially because we know what's being conferred. We do. Remember, Spock himself already said, the hump, you know, Gracie admits that what's going on is wrong and stupid, but she holds no malice towards humanity for it, and she'll see is sympathetic to our plight. So... We know what she conveys to the probe. We just heard it from Spock's mouth. We can infer the rest. We don't need, So, how you doing up there, Proby? For those of you who have not watched Sci-Fi Debris, I recommend you watch his Star Trek IV thing because he had his own subtitles for this section, the whole section, which are pretty funny, uh, in his own particular idiom, if you happen to like his humor style. So they cut Admiral Kirk down to captain for the, for the final time. He will end his career as a captain. It's an interesting situation because it's a complete false punishment and no one is pretending otherwise. I like that. Too often in real life, we have to follow the rules or we have to do the things even though they're wrong. And I'm just going to say it that way. Even though the law is wrong sometimes and doesn't apply in certain cases, I like the fact that in this movie, they took the law and used it to do something good, to reward Kirk for what he'd done. Understanding and recognizing that he was not malicious or, or ill-intended, and in, in recognition of the man who literally just saved the planet and probably the whole Federation. I like that. It's a good, feel-good ending to a movie that was pretty feel-good to begin with. Taylor ends up, you know, leaving and talking about how she'll keep in touch with him. In the novelization and then the novelization of Six... The, the Undiscovered Country, she does actually keep in contact with him. I only mention this because there's a wonderfully brilliant scene, and I'll talk about it here because I have no reason to talk about it in 6, where she is on a station, you know, doing whatever research it, that she has been assigned to, and she finds out about the trial, and she ends up watching the trial as Kirk is being tried, and she is in tears. And I like that because it added a personal touch to the situation. Knowing this man, who personally went through hell to try and save the, the planet being tried for assassinating an enemy, you know, the, the High Chancellor. It's a personal perspective on, on, the, uh, on the whole scene that I really liked, and it's a shame they couldn't get into the movie. There were some thoughts about doing it, but they were rejected almost immediately. I'll talk about why when we get there. Finally, two more things to talk about, and then I'm done. First of all, wouldn't it have been interesting if they had gotten the Excelsior at the end of this movie? For those of you not aware, uh, they get the Yorktown. No, I don't care what you say. They get the Yorktown. Now, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. Huh. Uh, the Yorktown was mentioned as having severe problems at the beginning of this film and is a Constitution class. And they give them the Enterprise 1701-A. 
Um, a ship that will only be in three movies, counting its brief cameo here. So, this ship, if it was recommissioned from another Constitution class, would make more sense than just making a brand new Constitution out of nowhere, right? Especially since they're trying to remove the Constitution from service, and especially since they do decommission the Enterprise A at the end of Star Trek VI. Spoiler alert. Why would they decommission a ship they just built, you know, however many years prior? Just a, a small smattering of time prior, right? Why do that? It makes no sense. It makes more sense if they decommissioned a ship that had been recommissioned as the Enterprise A, 1701A, and then were decommissioning it because it was already a damaged ship, which was already reaching the end of its lifespan, and therefore they were giving this to him as, as one final hurrah, rather than giving this to um, a brand new ship, which would, they would then bring back from him for no reason. Now, why the disparity? It's never actually... It's, it's often debated, because it really boils down to whether or not Star Trek V is canon. And I know that sounds weird, but that, that is a matter of debate, because Star Trek V contradicts so much when it comes to canon that, like I said, square, square hole, or square peg, round hole. Might as well just remove it from the equation entirely. If you remove Star Trek V from the equation entirely, it makes perfect sense that it's the Yorktown and flows naturally into six. The, the pieces fit perfectly, and that's why I agree with that, that thought process. However, Star Trek V adamantly insists that it is actually a brand new vessel, which was built specifically for them and built very, very poorly, I might add. Apparently built by monkeys, according to Scotty. And they demonstrate that repeatedly because everything is constantly breaking in Star Trek V. So you be the judge. Which is, which is more likely? The fact that they got the Yorktown or the fact that they got the I-can't-build-a-ship-A? But getting back to my main point, what if they had gotten the Excelsior? Wouldn't it have been interesting if in Star Trek V and Star Trek VI they had actually had the Excelsior? There's a lot of potential for that. For the crew of the Enterprise, that, that's a setting changer kind of a thing. Like what happened in Way of the Warrior over in DS9. That's something that would alter the, how the crew reacted and, and functioned with each other. I know that doesn't sound like it, but it's a whole new ship, a whole new situation. They could have done a lot of things with that. They didn't, obviously, and I'm kind of glad they did. But I just felt like giving you that one little nugget of thought. So... I'll see you next time at a movie I'm much less looking forward to watching. Have a good one, guys.